Welcome to Nashville to Memphis, a podcast hosted by Dr. Jason Lee McKinney, a recording artist, songwriter, and the rock star professor. N2M is a podcast where Jason and a guest or two literally talk on the phone while Jason is driving down I-40. The only subject criteria is that this podcast is all about the random crap Jason thinks about. So, all of you podcasters and audiophiles, just chill on the sound quality, you dig? Jason is a front pocket theologian, back pocket socio-philosopher, and a jockstrap surveyor of the music industry. You may not be able to make sense of it all, but that's okay. Neither can he. Thanks for listening to Nashville to Memphis. Don't forget to rate and write a review for the podcast on iTunes. You can find it under the title Nashville to Memphis. You can reach the podcast at www.facebook.com slash Nashville to Memphis. And check out Jason's music at www.jasonleemckinneyband.com as well as iTunes and Spotify under Jason Lee McKinney Band. Welcome back to Season 2 of Nashville to Memphis. My guest this week is Todd Henry. Todd is an author, speaker, podcaster who describes himself as an arms dealer for creativity. Todd's work with creatives and leading those creatives is revolutionary. His work has been featured in Harvard Business Review, on CNN, and Forbes Magazine, and Fast Company. Todd and I sit down to talk about what does it truly mean to be a creative and to lead creatives in a way that doesn't stifle that creativity. You can find Todd at www.toddhenry.com or at the Accidental Creative Podcast, or you can buy his latest book, Hurting Tigers, at all the usual suspects. So sit back, buckle up, and adjust the rear view. You're listening to Nashville to Memphis. So, all right, so uh, first of all, just sort of dive in and give the background on you. You write a lot and deal a lot with uh, creative people and it's, it's particularly vocationally. So how did that, how did you sort of lead into that career path? It's not a normal quote unquote career path. No, it's certainly not normal. Uh, it's not, it's, it's extremely abnormal. Um, but I, uh, yeah, so I started my, uh, in my earliest, I now call them misguided twenties as a uh, traveling musician. Um, and actually performed music full-time out of college. I studied marketing in school, and then uh, I paid my way through school largely by performing music. So I, I decided, well, hey, I mean, if, I, you know, if I've been able to pay for part of my college doing this, then you know, why don't I uh, see if I can make a run at it professionally? And so I did for several years. Uh, well, several, like three or four years out of college. I um, actually traveled and performed music and had a blast. Loved it. Um, lots of fun. Um, Lots of highs combined with lots of lows, as you can imagine. So, like, um, my, my favorite story to tell as it relates to that was, you know, one show um, I, I had the chance to play in front of about 70,000 people. At least that's what they told me it was. It was pretty amazing. It was at this big festival. And the next night, my band was playing in a bowling alley in Kentucky, and they were telling us to turn it down, right? Like, it's too loud. Yeah. Turn it down. Like, do you know where I was playing last night? You know? <laughs> But that's just kind of the highs and lows of being like a full-time musician. Like you take it as it comes and you play where you can and wherever people will, you know, give you a meal or whatever it is, right? Right. And so, um, so it was fun. It was a blast. But um, as many stories go, I, you know, met a girl and uh, she kind of convinced me that music business, gainful employment, and marrying an amazing woman. Like you can have two of those three, but not all three. So I chose <laughs> gainful employment and marrying an amazing woman and, um uh, ended up through a long series of strange circumstances, uh, ended up as, uh, the creative director at a nonprofit for a uh, number of years. And in the midst of that, I was leading a team that started with about four people and 
uh, ended up uh, with about 30 people on my team. And in the midst of all of that, just really started asking a lot of questions about, you know, why is it that some creative people seem to thrive? Some of the people on my team seem to thrive. Some people uh, struggle more. And why is it that in general it's really difficult to be creative under pressure? And over the course of many years of researching and asking questions and trying and failing and all of that um, came to what I felt like a pretty good set of, of reasonable hypotheses about why this worked and started a podcast in 2005. Um, and that podcast uh, pretty quickly uh, gained traction, uh, unexpectedly gained traction, and there were you know thousands and thousands of people listening, and um, that became sort of a, a platform for me to be able to reach out to even you know sort of bigger experts and other people who are kind of already in that space and um, pull them into the conversation. And then I started getting invitations to, uh, you know, to speak and to consult and do things with some companies that I was, I was a huge fan of these companies. I was really honored that the creative teams were reaching out to me to come in and speak to them. Uh, and so that then began a journey for me of thinking, okay, maybe it's time for me to leap out and to start something on my own. So I started my company, Accidental Creative, uh, about, about 10 years ago, I started it, um, and uh, have been, since then, have been, uh, you know, full-time helping people and teams learn how to be prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time. And I've uh, published four books with uh, Penguin Random House in the last, uh, wow, four books in the last seven years. It sounds wow. really crazy when you say it that way. Um, but yeah, I've, I've actually published, I've actually, I guess I've written them over the last eight years, but I've published them over the last seven years. Um, so that's a pretty, I basically have been under deadline to write a book since, you know, 2009 or something. Right. right. Um, so it's been kind of a crazy several years, but that's, that's kind of the long and short of, of how I got to where I am. Yeah, that's, uh, pretty amazing. Uh, a lot of similarities. I, uh, professor of music business and, um, yep. have made a living at it all but for four years of my entire adult life. Oh. So I stuck with it, except I went through a divorce. Because like you said, mm -hmm. you can only have two of the three. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but I actually am married very happily now to, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. so, but, um, but I, and when I stepped out, I stepped into the corporate world and I've had the exact same experience. We played a festival, um, you know, 30, 40,000 people. We got an encore. And then the next night it was literally in Kentucky where the promoter was like, oh yeah, we had a concert tonight. <laughs> and that's always a bad sign when you show up and they're like, oh Yeah. I forgot you guys are going to be here. So we actually played for the other band. You know, that was who we played for that night. So. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I'll tell you that. So, that is always. And we, I, we, I don't know about you guys. We, we spent a lot of our time as kind of the opening act, right? So we were the opener for. Um, I guess I probably could be a little more vulnerable. Like I was, I, I sing like West Coast Bakersfield country music, right? So like things gotcha. like Owens, like uh, really sort of rockabilly, down and dirty kind of. Let's just say lots of b-benders. You know, were used, yeah. were employed in the in the performance of the music, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. But so we spent a lot of time. That's kind of the opening act for some of these like really big national names, which was fun, but. As you well know, nobody wants to hear the opening act. Right. Nobody cares, right? So, and not only that, but like we were the opening act that nobody ever heard of. So they would go right. to a theater, you know, a theater to hear a, some band that they are huge fans of. And then, you know, out on stage walks this ragtag group of guys that, you know, it's like, okay, what, who are you and why are you here again? And when am I going to get to hear my favorite act? So, it's funny because I had, I had to learn very quickly, like, how do I get these people's attention and how do I win them over? 
to want right. to not only endure, but to actually really enjoy what we're doing. So kind of my gimmick, um, you know, because I mean, all bands have kind of have a gimmick, right? The thing that they right. do that's kind of they're like, okay, now we're going to pull this one out of the sleeve. <laughs> but like I grew up playing like honky tonk, boogie woogie piano music. And so, um, you know, we would always end our set with um, some kind of like Jerry Lee Lewis-esque type song. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'd end up like standing on the piano, playing it with my feet, like, you know, playing with my, like just going absolutely nuts. And by the end, like people would be screaming and on their feet and like, it was really cool. Um, so my, my goal was always from beginning to end of the set, can I win them over? Right. Uh, and it's funny to spend a lot of my time now, like speaking, that's kind of what I do. And it's always the same thing. It's like, you know, in any room of a thousand people, like, Probably, in my case, probably 900 of them have never heard of me before <laughs> when I right. walk in. Uh, and so my, my objective is always, like, how do I win these people over so that by the end they're like, more, come on, let's hear more, you know. And that's it's funny how many similarities there are. Yeah, they're for sure. I mean, I always say that, you know, the opening act is nobody's there to see you. They can't wait for you to get off stage, and you have to prove them wrong. Like, it's, it's yeah. the ultimate working hard is being the opening yeah. act. And I spent many a time in that. And, Still to this day, I've got a pretty loyal audience, but we're huge in Europe. So we'll go over to Poland and play for 50,000 people. We'll come over here and we'll play for 50 still. So we make sure. the majority of our money over there. Yeah. And, and I kind of love that life, though, um, because I get to come back here and I'm, I'm – you know, we play 80 to 100 shows, but I'm a professor. So um, – which kind of leads me into, you know, the first thing is do you find that there – is there a difference between leading creatives – versus teaching or training them. Do you find there's any delineation between those two? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when you're a teacher or a trainer, you have the luxury of showing up and dropping some knowledge on them and saying, well, here's the way it should be, but you don't have skin in the game. You know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to deal with the consequences always of the teaching. No matter how effective or ineffective the teaching is, you're not dealing with the consequences of it. Right. Um, but when you're a leader, you are inextricably tied to the outcomes that you're leading the team toward. So you will be known by the outcomes. Um, you will be defined by the outcomes. So uh, there, there's a, a huge difference because while a leader has to be a teacher and a trainer and a leader has to help people, has to coach them up to their full potential, um, you know, the, the teacher or the trainer doesn't necessarily – have to you know, be in the trenches with the troops, as it were, as they're sort of taking ground. Instead, they can sort of say, okay, well, here's how I would do it if I were you. Okay, see ya. You know? And right. um, that's, frankly, one of the things that is really challenging for me about the work that I do, because I love being in the trenches. I love being on the front lines. I love collaborating. I love getting you know, sort of getting messy and figuring it out and having to deal with the risk and the blood and the sweat and the tears of creative work. And it's you know, now I find myself, because I work with so many different organizations, I find myself, um, you know, sort of really missing that. I miss, you know, okay, I'm going to be here tomorrow and the next day and next week and the month after and all of that. Like, I'm still going to be here, so we need to figure this out, you know, because a lot of times I'm just sort of consulting, right? I'm the guy who right. comes in and helps give you a framework, and here's how I would do it. Um, but that's very different from, you know, from being around and living with the results of that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great that's a that's a great thing. And you talk a little bit and we'll we'll dive into your book in a little bit, but you talk a little bit about that responsibility thing uh and and hurting tigers. Um 
One thing, and this is sort of off, but I, this is just me being curious of what your thought. My favorite music artist is Prince, and he mm-hmm. was notoriously obsessive, like obsessive about – I knew guys that played in his band, and they'd be like, the dude would sleep for two hours a night, and he would – his personal relationships were messed up because of it. And I just ironically watched – there's a Judd Apatow um, – uh, Apatow, however you say his name, documentary on HBO about Gary Shanling. And the same sort of thing, mm-hmm. that obsessiveness and almost the paranoia, the tortured artist thing. You talk a lot about not only in, in your writings, but in your podcast I've listened to about creating that balance. But there are many people that would assert that for someone to be a quote-unquote creative genius, that they have to be tortured and they have to be obsessed. And basically what they're really saying and, and and this hits home for me because part of what I do is train young people. They're basically saying your life has to be an utter mess for you to achieve right. this goal. And right. to me, that is very heartbreaking because I see young people go, oh, my gosh, those are my only choices. Of right. And so I want you to maybe speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's an unfortunate myth. I think that we struggle with um, – I don't know if it's – uh, confirmation bias or survivorship bias or there's some sort of bias that I think we we tend to fall prey to when we are talking about the tortured artist because yes, absolutely. Have there been some brilliant artists who were tortured throughout history? Absolutely. Also, hey, were many of them bipolar perhaps and didn't know how to, to deal with it or treat it because you know we didn't have any medication or anything? Yes, absolutely. You know, um, so there was mental illness involved. Were there were there drugs involved? Absolutely. Would any of us say that you know that's a, a boy that's a really healthy lifestyle? You know what's a really healthy lifestyle? Why don't you sleep you know a couple of hours a night and take lots of drugs and you know devote all of your waking energy to your art? I don't think right. any of us would say okay that's a lifestyle I aspire to. And so I, I think that. You know, and listen, there are all, all different reasons why people who, who are from all different backgrounds and have different influences and have different um, expectations and struggles and um, whatever, there's a reason why those things happen. So I'm not judging anyone who's been in any circumstance, but I just, I, I just want to encourage people that that, you know, I, I know a lot of brilliant musicians, artists, um, business leaders, who, yes, are extremely driven in their work. Yes, they work hard and they work many hours. I mean, they have weeks where they don't see their family. But it's, right. not, every, it's not every week. And it's not all the time. And it's not for forever and ever. You know, they have rhythm in their life. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I will, if I have three or four speaking engagements in a week, I'll go a week sometimes without physically face-to-face seeing my children. Um, and I will, I'll tell them in advance. I'll say, hey, dad's going to go. I'm going to be gone. I've got a big business trip. I've got to go away. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be in four or five different cities in the next week or week and a half. Um, but, but, what? And, and so people will point to that and say, well, that's not healthy. And I'll say, well, but, you know, there are entire weeks during the summer where I do nothing but hang out with my kids because business right. is slower. You know, in the summer, business is slower. Companies aren't doing events. They're not hiring trainers. They're not whatever. And so, you know, I mean, there, there are weeks where I just say, you know what, I'm going to work a couple hours in the morning and I'm just going to go to the pool with my kids this afternoon. Um, and that's, 
you know, for me, that's what it's about. It's about building rhythm. Not, it's not about balance. Balance is impossible. Balance is like, oh, I'm going to do a little bit here, a little bit there. I'm going to make sure everything's perfectly proportioned. That's unrealistic. If you, if you actually want to accomplish something, there are right. going to be sprints in your life. You're going to have to sprint from time to time. You know, as you well know, when you're in the studio recording an album, you can't say, well, you know, I know we only have this studio for a couple of days, but hey, I've got to spend two hours with my wife today because I need balance in my life. It's like, no, no, right. you can't, <laughs> you know, we're paying for this studio. Like we're squeezing every ounce out of our time. Um, that's, that's a sprint. You have to sprint. There are times when you have to sprint. You have to immerse yourself in your work. But, it can't be all the time. It can't be 24-7. And you have to instill some rhythm. Even in the midst of your sprints, you need to have some rhythm, not just because it's healthy for you, but because it's going to lead to the best end product. Um, right. I just read an article um, about Ocean Sound Studio. I forget what, what magazine it was in. Um, but, you know, it's it's uh, man, so many bands like Arcade Fire and others have gone there to record their albums and the reason they go there is because it is an all in one like you eat there you sleep there you record there it's basically a retreat but you're making right. music while you do it and that's beautiful that's a wonderful thing because it allows you to say all right we're going to go and the next what two weeks of our life is dedicated to nothing but making this thing great that we're working on and then we can break and go away and you know devote ourselves to our our personal life i i think that you know, we have to embrace a sense of rhythm in our life, not uh, strive for balance, which is, I think, unreachable. Yeah, I love that. I And I, I unfortunately didn't realize that early in my life, which is why I'm on my second marriage, that there are, mm -hmm. you know, I thought you had to be the obsessive. And that's like this narrative that, that back when la record labels were a thing, <laughs> unlike mm -hmm. now where they're becoming less and less a thing, we're like, oh, kid, you got to be on the road 350 days a year and you got to, and I just saw people, person after person, just burn out and and fade yeah. away. And and I think about the the silly Sound City uh, or you know uh, one of the Foo Fighters documentaries where Dave is recording a guitar part and his daughter keeps tugging at his sleeve while he's recording it. And what she says when he stops is, "You promised we'd go swimming," and he just goes, "Okay, we're gonna stop. Everyone going swimming." Like it's like, and mm -hmm. now obviously. You know, when when real mortals are in the studio, we can't afford that. But he's a guy that's like, right. okay, I promised my kid I'm going to go swimming, so I'm right. going to go do that. Because the thing yeah. I think creatives get told this narrative is like, what are you creating this life for? At some point, you have to live the life you're creating. There has to be a yeah. life beyond because – which leads okay. us to my next question because um, we have this thing. My wife spent um, a few years – she, they called her a missionary to China, but what she did is teach English. I don't know how that works, but it, I guess some sort of – she taught ESL is what she taught in the high schools. But she lived in China for a few years, Hong Kong. And one of the things she noticed when she got back between Western culture and Eastern culture is that Western culture is so youth-obsessed that especially maybe in creative things, like whether it's graphic design or even filmmaking or acting or – writing or musicians, we almost have this perception that people age out of being a com at least a commercially viable creative being, where in Eastern culture, they esteem their elders in a way Man. that we could say maybe is to a point of not being healthy, but I think there's a lot we could learn from esteeming the elders. Do you see that? Do you, what do you see the consequences of that in Western culture, or do you even see that in Western culture? Oh, absolutely. I think that there's a, there's a perception that older means out of touch, that you're not connected with trends.
Scott, hang on, hang on a second. Oh, yeah. For some reason, you're skipping. I started skipping all of a sudden. I don't know okay. if it's a connection on my end or. Can you say something? Yeah. Can you can you hear me now? Is everything okay? Yeah, well, it's starting to do. Let me let me move and see if it's me. Okay. I just don't want um, don't want the audio to be bad. Okay. No problem. Yeah, that's better on my end. Sorry. Can we? Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely think that's the case. I mean, I, you know, I look at what's going on with my kids and and the trends that they are following or the things that are happening in their lives, and I realize, you know, um, uh, I, I, you know, I am not as in touch with what's cool to a teenager as I was, you know, years ago. I right. was never, I was never cool, right? But at least I understood like kind of what was acceptable, what wasn't. Um, but I think what we do in our dismissal of um, of age and, um, you know, sort of the, the, el- the elder in our society is we discount wisdom. You know, we have exchanged awareness for wisdom. Um, mm. we, we, we believe that because we're more aware of things that we're smarter or that we, um, are more engaged, that we're more important, that we're more, you know, sort of tuned in. But there's a very big difference between awareness and understanding and there's an even bigger difference between understanding and wisdom wisdom is applied understanding um as d hawk put it you know it is the ability to not only connect dots but to understand what those dots mean and to apply that understanding within some sort of code of ethics because you have been around long enough that you understand that there are some things that work better than others and while youth is more aware and there's more energy and all of that, they don't necessarily see the same patterns. Um, one mm. of my favorite um, thinkers and writers is a guy named Thomas Merton, who was cloistered outside of Louisville, Kentucky, for um, a couple of decades back in the mid-1900s and wrote – he was a, a, a monk. He wrote some of the most profound things you ever want to read. Just an amazing guy, brilliant, so insightful. And here's a guy who was largely cloistered from society, right? And yet there was intense wisdom um, in his writing. And so, you know, I think that we have to be really careful not to confuse awareness with wisdom um, and to not discount those who have a little bit more experience than we do, just because we think that their answer seems simplistic. Oh, well, you know, that's just so-and-so chiming in again. They always try to, you know, give us, you know, advice or that, oh, yeah, that seems obvious. Well, yeah, sometimes the most obvious thing is the most wise thing. And we discount right. it because it's not new and novel. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's a big problem in our society for sure. Yeah, I, sometimes I say that cliches are cliche for a reason sometimes. Mm. They became yes. cliche because there's actually some truth to them. Um, yes, that's right. Thank you so much for listening to Nashville to Memphis. We truly appreciate it. If you enjoy the podcast, go on to your podcast provider on iTunes and give us a rating. Write us a couple sentences telling everyone how great we are. Ratings should be five stars and nothing below. I love doing this podcast, but like everything else, it costs money to make. So if you would, to show some support, go to Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and stream some of our music. We have seven albums out. And it would mean a lot if you'd share it with your friends and tell everyone else about us, the Jason Lee McKinney Band. And speaking of supporting my music, here's a little sample for you, a song you can sit back and enjoy while you're riding down the road.
insincere for rednecks I don't sing about beer Indie folks and too passing good but Mainstream radio I'm too damn good Too little, too much everywhere I go Too many things ain't got enough soul Oh no My hometown it don't love me But I'm just fine chasing obscurity Great. I, one of the things we did, um, I taught a master's class where we used your book, Hurting Tigers, oh. uh, as one of our textbooks. And one of the things we did is we created for the university a a way to apply broadly the Enneagram. Uh, the yeah. school that I teach at primarily, um, it's only music production students, music performance, and music business. So you're dealing with a whole school full of creatives, which means you're also dealing with an entire staff full of creatives. So yeah. there's no one around who's really, um, by the traditional sense, quote unquote, got a good head on their shoulders. Now that's actually not true, but it just there's not a lot of quote unquote normal people, whatever that means, walking around the building. So the way you interact with each other, so what we try to do is create a database for the Enneagram that created everything from like, you know, student housing, who would be put in what house and all this sort of stuff, what dorm room. So I wanted to see if you um, had any thoughts or insights into when you're in a room full of creatives, how does personality, even amongst the creatives, play a vital ro role? Because they'll talk about even like in juries, you know, the group think of the strongest, loudest person can take over a jury if people aren't, yeah. aren't careful, which is the problem with focus groups sometimes. So yeah, how right. do you see the personality interplay even within creatives and creative work? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, I think um, your personality, as you said, often the, the strongest personality wins out in a conversation, which is a problem because you're trying to get to the best idea, not the loudest idea. Um, and, you know, there in especially if you think about the, you think about the music business, right? And I, I hate to keep coming back to that, but I know that's near and dear to your heart, right? But, um, you know, when you think about the music business, you know, why, why is it that bands break up more often than not? Um, often it's something related to um, creative control. You know, it's I don't feel like my creative contribution is being valued. I feel like someone else's is being overvalued. Um, we're not going the direction I think we should go. It's because they aren't bending themselves around the arc of the band's narrative, the central sort of creative identity of the band. They still have retained their own identity, their own sense of who they are. Um, and they're not willing to compromise that, you know, to, to the band. So I think, I think that's one thing is I think we have to be really careful to recognize that when we're in a collaborative environment, the objective is primal. What we're trying to do together is more important than my being recognized or my individual contribution. Um, and so our, our, I am immediately saying my objective is to get to the best idea, not to get to my idea. You know, that's, right. that's, that's number one. Um, but second, I think we have to recognize that people are wired differently. 
So you have some people, one creative director in researching herding, herding tigers called the fast twitch and slow twitch people. You have a fast twitch person who is the person who comes into a, a brainstorming session or a studio session or something, and it's just boom, 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 boom. What about this? What if we try that? Let's do this. Hey, hey, hey. And they have a hundred ideas in, you know, 10 minutes. And everybody's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, 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 okay. And then you have other people who are slow twitch people. And slow twitch people are people who are just as brilliant. They have just as, you know, their ideas are just as valid, but it might take them, you know, a half hour, an hour, a couple of hours, sometimes even a couple of days to come up with an idea that they feel is valuable enough to share with everyone else. Well, when you allow fast twitch people to take over the conversation, you'll hit, you'll end up with a lot of ideas, but are they going to be the best ideas? Are they going to be the ideas that really move the needle? Or are they just the ideas that came the quickest? And so, well, okay, we have to settle on one of these. Well, you've only utilized a portion of the people in the room when you default to um, prioritizing fast twitch people over slow twitch people. So whether you're in a brainstorming session or a studio or whatever you're doing, it's important to recognize that there are some people who are going to be those fast twitch people. And they also, by the way, tend to be very vocal. <laughs> they tend to be the, the pushy people in the room. And there are going to be some people who are going to be the slow twitch people, maybe the, the more introverted, the people who skew more to the introverted side, people who have great ideas, but they have to noodle around with it for a while before they come up with a great idea. Um, and you can't penalize them just because they aren't fast twitch. So I think right. Is that like a couple of things. Are they, is that like similar to like an internal versus external processor, basically? Yeah, it can be, certainly. Um, you know, I, I think there's a difference between fast twitch, slow twitch, and internal external processors. But I do think that if you really drilled it, if you really cornered some slow twitch people, you would find that a disproportionate number of them are internal processors, right? They're people right. who feel more comfortable sitting and ruminating and thinking and connecting dots and trying to come to something, you know, maybe on a walk or maybe sitting alone in their office staring at the wall. They like to um, come to things on their own versus the fast twitch people who are constantly feeding off of the stimulus in their environment. And what about this and this and this? And what about that? Hey, that made me think of this. It's like, hey, we haven't heard from seven other people in the room right now. Let's give them a chance, right? And so right. we just, you know, as a leader, part of your job is to balance that, to make sure you're managing that dynamic. Right. That's really good. And I think, you know, I say often that, you know, both Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln were great leaders, but their personalities, mm -hmm. if you read about them, couldn't be more different. You know, Lincoln yes. was very introverted, very uh, – used very few words, you know, and notorious for his cabinet meetings speaking the least. For Teddy Roosevelt, it was very bombastic and very out there and gregarious, yeah. And but they were both – great leaders they're both on mount rushmore so i mean there's absolutely. more than one way to be a leader and one more, more than one way to be creative um, absolutely well and one and one of my favorite uh i don't know if you've seen the the film about lincoln it's based on uh team of rivals but um and, and daniel day lewis right Played yeah lincoln. i've seen that uh, dude, yeah oh brilliant my one of my favorite scenes is you know the entire movie lincoln has been this sort of meek you know kind of gentle spoken man and telling stories and just kind of affable the entire time and then there's a moment where his cabinet is, you know, sort of saying, well, but how are we going to do this? I don't, you know, and he just stands up and he says, I am the president of the United States clothed in immense power. You will get me those votes. Right. And it's like he he understood how to he understood the, the critical nature of moments 
Right. right. There's, a, there's a time when we can say, all right, we've got time to think about this. I can endure all of your questioning and your BS. And there's a time when I just need to kick your butt and get you moving. And right. as a leader of creative people, there comes a time when you just have to say, listen, it is do or die time. We're doing this right now. We're making this happen. We're figuring this out. There's no more discussion. There's no more whining. There's no more complaining. This is happening, and it's happening right now. And uh, it's, it's one of my favorite scenes, I think, from a movie ever because it's uh, it's so powerful in its impact. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a great movie and, and a couple of great men. Um, I've mentioned it a couple times, but – and I don't want to I don't want to speak for you, so I wanted to have you give your – Elevator speech for herding tigers. I will say that my master's class, I use it in a master's class. They found it very informative, very liberating in a way Hmm. that that it was, I would say the information, some of it was new, but more of it was like, I've always known that, but I didn't know that. You know what I'm saying? When you're describing creative, like I've always innately thought that there was something that wasn't being articulated. And you put words to that, that I saw the students go, that's what I'm talking about. That, yes, yeah. that's me. And that, to me, that is a more impactful than just a whole bunch of new information is under letting or informing people on how to understand themselves and then how to lead others that are like them, at least in the creative process. It was really a, a fantastic book. And I don't just BS say that. It was an amazing book. They loved it. So, uh, what was your elevator that. speech? Well, that's it. Well, um, I'll give you my elevator speech, but, but before I do, I just want to say that that's what I aspire to. I want to reveal to creatives things that they've always known and suspected but never had terms for. They never understood how to talk about some of these dynamics they're experiencing. But once you understand, once you have terms for what you're experiencing and you understand those dynamics and you can actually make them concrete, you can begin to deal with them. And a lot of creatives are like, oh, I never – realize that, yeah, I am kind of paralyzed by this thing, or, oh, yeah, that is a real thing that's playing out on our team, and I always felt it, but I or I suspected it, but I never really knew what to call it. So that's so encouraging to hear you say that. Thank you. My elevator pitch for Hurting Tigers is, listen, leading creative work is unlike leading any other kind of work, because you are perpetually venturing into the unknown. You're perpetually trying to solve incredibly complex problems with unrealistic deadlines, with scarce resources, And you have to do that over and over and over again. And every problem is different. You have to solve different kinds of problems. But many leaders are unaware of the basic fundamental things that creative people need from them in order to produce their best work. And so Herding Tigers at its root is about providing the stability and challenge that your team needs in order to produce its best work day after day and hopefully week after week and you know, year after year, um, and to help them be prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and that's great. And that's a challenge you mentioned about books. We've we're getting ahead in the studio for our seventh album in eight years, and so that's wow. uh, that, that's a pretty prolific thing. And I think you know one of the things you talk about in Hurting Tigers is there's this myth that creatives don't want any parameters, and right. and but if you don't give any parameters, you just sort of like the Israelites, you're just wandering in the desert. <laughs> you're right. just sort of That's out right. there. And, you know, I think for us, for me, it's creating that vision of going, okay, this album is going to be this. We're going to lean on this. You know, arrangements are going to be short and tight or they're going to be long. Just creating not a ton, but a few parameters for a cohesion that sort of those limits. Now let's be creative within those limits. Like I have put, you know, to my drummer on this record, we're not going to use very many symbols. 
let's get around mm-hmm. using a ton of symbols. Other than yeah. that, not a lot, but even that going, okay, now I can think about it. And that excites creatives. Those right. little bit of parameters excite them, a ton of parameters, and they feel claustrophobic. No That's parameters, right. and their brains get away from them, and they just wander aimlessly. A few That's parameters right. – I think sets that beacon up ahead for them to aim at. And and that's one of the things you put in the book that is like that. I've always done that, but I've never heard anyone put it the way you did. Yeah. Well, Orson Welles said the absence of limitation is the enemy of art, right? C- creativity, art needs a bounding arc, needs, needs boundaries. What we want as creatives is not complete freedom. What we want is a bounded autonomy, we want freedom within boundaries. So that way we know where to focus our energy, right? Where to focus our, our effort. I mean, if you look at, like, uh, you know, it's interesting that, um, most people don't, well, most people who haven't really, aren't really aware of music history don't realize the competition that occurred between the Beach Boys and the Beatles in the right, 1960s, right? right? And people back don't realize forth, yeah. that, oh, back and forth. And like, you know, uh, I think that the Beatles heard, uh, I'm going to get the sequence of this wrong, but like the Beatles heard Pet, Pet Sounds, and Pet Sounds was sort of the inspiration for Sgt. Pepper, right? Just this idea right. that we can go, we can actually push ourselves and create sort of a concept album and really get outside the bounds of what we've done before. Um, but it was the sort of, okay, now we've got a target. We've got a new target to shoot for. You know, we, we, we understand kind of where we're going with it. That was what led to that. Uh, enhanced understanding of what was possible. And so that was a bounded autonomy, right? It was like freedom, but within sort of very clear boundaries or within a very clear genre or a, a clear you know, sort of guiding arc of, of what that was for them. And so, you know, I think that what we what we need to do as leaders is understand where to set those rails, which is always the challenge. You know, the mystic creatives want complete freedom is often sourced in uh, this very unhealthy interaction that some creatives have had with leaders who try to be overly controlling. Right. They try to, you know, clamp down and try to control the work and tell people what to do rather than giving them clear direction and letting them work within, within those bounds. So yes, I think if, if you just keep in mind the phrase bounded autonomy, I think that's a really good way for leaders to think about their job. Right. Okay, well, I'm down to the last two questions. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I read or I was listening – I think I was listening to your podcast, and uh, I had two goals growing up. I wanted to be uh, a gigantic rock star, very reasonable goal. And then my other goal <laughs> is I wanted to be on a NBA championship basketball team, very reasonable yeah. goal. My, my guidance yeah. counselor loved both those ideas. Uh, <laughs> they thought both totally reasonable. Um, so, but I discovered you had a love and grew up playing basketball. In fact, yeah. I was kind of convicted. I, I coached, I have two sons that are grown. One of them's actually in a touring punk band and the other is a, um, a worship minister now at a church, uh, both musicians, okay. but I coached yeah. them in AAU growing up and that thing in hurting tigers, you talked about your dad, that difficulty, not only from his end, but from your end. So it, it just, I related a lot. I grew up, you know, wanting to be. A basketball player. I I thought yeah. that I thought that's what I and then at some point I discovered I was good, but I was six three in in um, Caucasian, and I could shoot really good, but I wasn't incredibly fast and I couldn't jump incredibly high, and the only you know the only looks I could have got they weren't from Duke and North Carolina, so I was like, huh, <laughs> right. we may right. want to go from uh, right. we may want to go with Plan B. So my right. question to you is, um, if you had an all-time favorite, not best, 
starting five, who would be just oh. your favorite player starting five? Oh, man, that's unfair. <laughs> that's unfair. Um, you know, first of all, it's so funny, man. Our stories are are so similar in that way. I mean, that's that was I'm six three, uh, was a shooter. Like once was like nine for ten from three point line in, in a game, you know. Like right. um, that was kind of my gig was like just a really really great shooter on the team and and played defense and rebound and stuff. But like, but again, not like jumping out of the gym, not like super quick, not any of that stuff. So um, you know, even though you know, sort of like scored in the high thirties a bunch of times, you know, my senior year didn't really matter because <laughs> it's like, right? Yeah, it's yeah. great. You can drop the threes and you can you know do that stuff. But you know, anyway. Um, my okay, so my all-time uh, top five. Well, I mean, Jordan has to be in there, right? Right. Um, uh, boy, my goodness, you're really putting me on the spot here. This is gonna be tough. Um, I'd have to. I mean, I'd have to go with Magic Johnson, um, okay. probably. Um, as my as my point guard. So you got um, your backcourt. Yeah, so I've got my backcourt now. Um, boy, um, I'm gonna say. See, all these guys are old, right? They're all from the old days. But um, I, I would, I'm, I'm really torn between um, Shaq and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, okay. as my center. Um, but I, I think I'm probably going to go with Kareem as my center. Um, LeBron would be one of my forwards. And, um, man, only five. Man, that's really hard. Um, we've got to pick another forward, don't I? Yeah. Um, Hmm. Uh, okay, I'll just round it out with like all the old guys, and I'll just say Larry Bird is my other okay. forward. <laughs> well, I grew up in Indiana, so there was plenty about Larry Bird going on in Indiana. <laughs> so really, LeBron is my only, and I have this conversation with my kids all the time, right? I'm like, you know, because they'll they'll ask me about Jordan, like Jordan versus LeBron, or you know, I, I think Steph Curry is one of the greatest shooters of all time. I really do. I, I do I, too. You know, unquestionably. Um, you know, and and probably will bear out as maybe one of, if not, you know, maybe one of the greatest point guards of all time. Um, you know, but I, boy, Pistol Pete. Anyway, but um, yeah. So I th- I think you'll probably you'll probably end up with um, you know, Steph is one of the greatest of all time. But I think I mean for me personally, like I, if I were just naming my all time top five, those would probably be the ones I would pick. Yeah, that's a. That's a good crew. My, mine's a little more eclectic. I'm, of course, growing up in Indiana, I would throw Reggie Miller as my shooting guard just because mm-hmm. he could have ran for governor in Indiana and we would have, he would have voted him in. Like, <laughs> he was, he was that popular in Indiana. Sure. Um, especially after the, uh, nine points in 17 seconds. That's, that's really yeah. all he needed to do. That right there was <laughs> phenomenal. But yeah, so that, I thought the basketball thing. And last question, this is the most important question I ask every podcast. There's those songs that, you know, in the shower you're jamming out to or in the car by yourself. But if you're in like a business meeting or around people you want to impress, you don't exactly admit that you're, you like those. Like I had, uh, Jody Stevens from Big Star say that his favorite guilty pleasure was Dancing Queen from ABBA. So I'm asking everyone, everyone I have on the podcast to reveal for the first time a guilty pleasure, a song that they've never admitted in public that they just love. Oh man. <laughs> um, okay, I'll tell you one that I listened to the other day. Oh man. Uh, okay, I don't know. The, the problem is though, like you're sort of saying by admitting this, you're saying you think this song is cheesy, right? That's good. Right, I don't yeah. know that. I don't. I don't know that it fully is, and I don't want to insult anyone by saying that this is. But 
Um, there's a song, sort of a pump-up song that I used to listen to all the time uh, called You Get What You Give by New Radicals. And yeah. um, I was actually just listening to it the other day. And uh, it, it was kind of one of those songs that, like, I, I don't exactly go down the road blasting that out my windows, but it's kind of one of those, like, you know, uh, one of those songs that kind of pumps me up every time I hear it. So. Yeah, man, that actually that whole record is fantastic. That's the worst song on the record. It's the best Rolling Stones record that never got made. So, um, but man, I, I really appreciate you being on, man. I, I, I am truly, this may sound weird. I am truly fascinated by how similar our stories are. It's, yeah, it's kind of a little bit crazy. Um, and I would definitely be up to talk again at some point. I mean, it, I, I had a weird path from, you know, re- re- basketball rejections and music to, uh, be, getting a doctorate and being a professor. It was a weird path, but I think, um, I would certainly be up to talk again if, uh, if you wanted to do that. So, and yeah, I, I greatly appreciate you being on the podcast, man. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks for having me.